you're well. The gaps between episodes have been longer, but I hope you're still listening with me. In this episode, I speak with Dewani Shaw, who's a psychiatrist and psychoanalyst. I really enjoyed my conversation with Dewani. There's so many things he said that have stayed with me, but three that keep coming back to me are, you exceed yourself in even what you believe you are. If you love your parents 55% of the time, they've actually done okay. How do we be close and intimate with people and retain our subjectivity? I think he really captures the beauty of the psychoanalytic encounter and to use his words, its emancipatory potential. The very reasons why psychoanalysis really speaks to me. And I'll make a little plug here for a project that I'm doing the Asian American Center for Psychoanalysis, an educational nonprofit bringing Asian Americans and psychoanalysis together. Check it out at taacp.org. The link is also in the show notes. And here's my conversation with Dewani. I hope you enjoy it. I'm just wondering maybe you could self-introduce, give us a little introduction of who you are. My name is Dwani Shah. I'm a psychoanalyst and psychiatrist practicing in Princeton, New Jersey. And I mostly treat patients in private practice, but I also teach at the Analytic Center and at the University of Pennsylvania, where I did my residency. Yeah, mostly in psychotherapy. Your residency was in psychotherapy? It was actually in psychiatry. Um, So I did my medical school training, which we can talk about why I took that route to actually do mostly psychotherapy. But I did the medical route, did my psychiatric training residency there. Um, luckily, the two um, residency directors I had there were both very psychotherapy focused, and one was an analyst himself. So we did a lot of training in psychotherapy, especially in the last couple of years training. And then I did a um, psychoanalytic training in, in Philadelphia. Because yeah, that's unusual, right, to have psychotherapy more integrated into your residency. Most psychiatry residencies have some component of psychotherapy related, but unfortunately it's become much more of a biomedical model. It's more about diagnosis and treatment with medications or treatment that are outside of psychotherapy, but they still do some psychotherapy training. It seems like your approach is much more looking at it in conjunction with it, not one or the other. I really feel like that's the most important aspect of what we do is our therapeutic alliance with our patients and our relationships with our patients and how we navigate that. And all of the literature says that too, that most of the effects of what we do have to do with the bond and the alliance we have with our patients and how we work with them and how we help them with their suffering. Definitely. And also the piece about psychopharmacology, I often find that as a therapist that doesn't have that piece, kind of an important component to be able to consult with or have a treatment team. So kind of having those two pieces kind of have a more holistic view of the client, because sometimes there is something that is beyond the relationship that psychopharmacology is actually important piece of the treatment. It can be, but it could also be used in ways that harm the patient or help not help the patient explore the things that they need to explore or be with that are painful and difficult. Be so painful and difficult, they're unbearable and a person suffering in a way that's something is required that's more. It's really difficult sometimes to make those calls. Like even myself, like, you know, I'm like, just give me a, give me something, even something physical, right? I'm in pain, but I don't want to stretch. <laughs> I'm just yeah, like, exactly. just give me something to take this away. And sometimes I feel like the two approaches, although they have some similarities, they're very different because in psychotherapy, we help our patients like suffer with something as opposed to suffering from something. And with medications, it's all about alleviating suffering through lessening its intensity. So in one way, it's like we're trying to help our patients be with something in a different way. In another avenue, we're trying to lessen the intensity. I'm sitting with the suffering with something. Yeah. There's a suffering from something. I mean, it's such the human condition, right? We're always maybe suffering with something. Like, it's just part of life. So kind of helping them have some capacity to bear the things that are difficult or unbearable in life. That's exactly how I feel. You mentioned you did a psychiatric residency, and then how did you go into psychoanalytic training from there? Yeah, that's a a long answered, but uh, I'll, I'll try to 
meander my way through that. I, so I was born in India and I came to America when I was only two years old. So a lot of my pre-verbal feelings are in India, but a lot of my <laughs> verbal experiences in America. So I, you know, okay, so I'll give you another detail about me. Uh, my mother is a sculptor and a um, conceptual artist. She does a lot of bronze work and a lot of installation art, a lot of kind of contemporary stuff. Like for example, I'll give you an example, like in one of her sculptures, there's a woman in a sari whose head is sticking in a gun and then she paints it all in Indian miniature and then burns it. In many ways, she was a traditional Indian mom, but in other ways, she was a radical feminist and a very interesting pioneering woman in the field of South Asian art. So I had that experience. And then I had my father, who's an internist and a medical doctor. I never wanted to be an artist or a doctor, actually, when I was growing up. I didn't want to be either. I loved philosophy. I loved literature. I loved all of those. The things that I, I loved the most were you know, the human condition, human suffering, why we do irrational things, our passions, you know, finding some kind of way of understanding the unexplainable, the subjective, how do we actually make sense of things that are actually the human experience without it just being our opinion? You know, are there truths in human nature? Things like that. So anyway, I went through college. I, I did philosophy and psychology and comparative literature. And then I was a clinical um, manager case manager for patients for several years who are chronically mentally ill in New York and in New Jersey, where I kind of drove them to the AA meetings and kind of helped them clean their rooms and gave them medications and kind of hung out with them. And that was a lot of fun. And I, I liked it. But what I, I realized was I was sort of straying from the path of doing what I wanted, which was really psychotherapy. But somehow, and this is a kind of mystery. I'm not sure exactly how this happened. I ended up in medical school. I think a part of it was an identification with my father and always feeling this sense of wanting to be like him in a way, but also fearing that um, identification and, and feeling intimidated by him and that whole world of medicine, which always felt so big to me as a, as a guy. And he was this kind of big guy in this field. So I think I did it in many ways for that reason. So I went through medical school very clumsily and difficultly. And then I, I ended up in psychiatry and I kind of refound that feeling of, of just saying, no, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do therapy. So I wanted to find a way to do that. So that's where I got interested in psychoanalysis, which I was always interested in from the beginning, but I found a way to do it. And then I made a commitment to really be that be a major part of my practice. So it's kind of a strange like route. No, not strange at all. It, it feels like you you touch on like these different pieces of how they came together for you. It makes sense to me. I mean, I know it's like I'm hearing it as as many years of probably you figuring this out or understanding. Right. And I'm like, oh, it makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> right. Psychotherapy or psychoanalysis is this sort of the father and the mother that you described to me in some ways, like coming together. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We often talk about psychotherapy as being, I don't want to call it an art, but kind of a, there is no right way to do. I mean, there are, you know, like there are some rules and guidelines, but it's kind yeah. of a, what emerges in the session or with some grounding in theory, right? So. Exactly, yeah. That's what makes it so fascinating. It's this really interesting blend of objectivity and subjectivity. And how do you, be objective about subjectivity or can you even be objective about subjectivity? And when you are being objective about subjectivity, what are you really doing? And it's also just as a clinical practice, it's very much like art. And every patient is so different and every situation requires in many ways, if it's going to be authentic, creative response from us. And I, yeah. And I wonder if you could talk about this word subjectivity, right? Because yeah. people new to psychoanalytic thinking or practice or I don't know if you could give us a little bit more flavor to that word. Yeah. I feel like, let me just back up for a second and say, say this, because I think it's a really important. I feel like what we do as psychoanalysts, and you can tell me if you agree with this too, is, is we're really trained to listen. And in the end, I think it's a practice of listening more than any other kind of modality where there is a set form of what we ought to do to a person or for a person, like a manual or some kind of treatment guideline that we are implementing on a person. Psychoanalysis is radical in the way that it's 
this sense of just sitting back and really taking in a person's being and listening to them and allowing that person to resonate with your own being and that intermingling of, of two people in a room together. And for me, that what we're listening for is there, I guess we could use the word subjectivity, it's their being in the world. It's their way of thinking, their feeling, their way of operating in the world. And they're putting words to it and they're putting speech to their experience. And also just being with them and sitting with them and allowing that process to take hold of. So for me, what's most interesting for me is all of the aspects of a person that they often don't articulate or put into words about their internal experience that now they, they have a chance to in a place that they feel safe to do that and a freedom where they feel like they could do that. It's what makes the person the person, their subjectivity, yeah. kind of the richness of who they are. Yeah. What's so interesting to me about psychoanalysis and which I love about it is you find out that you exceed yourself in what you even believe you are. <laughs> like we think we're our ego, you know, we think, oh, I'm our, my rational person. I'm this, I'm that, I'm this, I am a man, I am this, I'm that. But then when you start to actually talk and you allow yourself to be with another person and fantasize and imagine and feel and talk about your dreams and your, your, your desires and your daydreams and all the things that you really want to do and you love, you start to realize you're more than even who you think you are. Like you're discovering yourself in this process because we are also told what we are, right? Kind of. So I think yeah. in this process, you can uncover parts of yourself that maybe have been closed up. Yes. That we contain multitudes in many ways. And oftentimes we're told that we are certain ways and that we are kind of yes, stuck in those ways of being. Yeah. It's interesting, you know, a practice of listening. Often people that are not therapists or even my parents, they're like, what are you doing? Are you just listening? Like, Yeah. Nobody realizes how hard it is, right? I want to tell them, I'm like, look, you sit in a room and try to keep your mouth shut for 20 minutes and really listen, not just zone out or dissociate or tell someone what to do and give them some piece of advice or some food. Just listen. <laughs> just actually sit there and take it in. Yeah, it's really hard. But like yesterday... <laughs> I was quite tired as just my day and I could see how poorly I was listening. Yeah. But we're not just listening to what is said. I don't know if you could tell us more about listening to give people a sense of what are we listening for? How do we listen? I guess maybe. I agree with you. I think sometimes people think we listen to try to problem solve or we listen to try to search for a solution. For me, it's less about, and I think this is a psychoanalytic attitude. It's less about, knowing and it's more about being in a certain way allowing yourself to be in a receptive place where a person feels like they can really articulate their desires their thoughts their feelings forbidden feelings and thoughts things that they've thought to themselves that they've never been able to say before i feel like what's so interesting about psychoanalysis is that when you actually start that process going you feel the richness of the person's life emerge and then also ways in which they avoid that richness or they protect themselves against enormity of all of their desires and feelings. And then you also find out that people are very conflicted, that they have all kinds of conflicts that they feel anxious about, they feel nervous about, that they're not even totally aware of. I've always found it interesting that if you just allow a person to talk honestly, and say very little at first, but then help them understand where they're having a hard time talking, how things can emerge that surprise themselves. They start to formulate a different kind of way of being with their own feelings and thoughts. I'm just thinking about the listening, and this goes into like thinking about why psychotherapy or psychoanalysis work. It's listening, it's like there's an interest, like the other is interested in you and and how little we get that from parental or yes. people. It's like a genuine interest in how that. Yes. Being seen, being known, not in a logical way, but in a experiential bodily way. But the other piece of this is, I feel like what people don't understand about psychotherapy that I think you and I and therapists know that, I think on an intuitive level, people know this, but they don't often are, think about it carefully or articulate it, is that it's hard to bear what people have to say. There are things we don't want to talk about, or there are things that are hard for us to bear as listeners. 
you know, when they talk about their traumas, about violence, about racism, about aspects of their life that are painful to them, we don't want to, we don't want to go there as listeners usually. And you could see our own family members and people in our lives saying, ah, okay, that's enough. You know, I've heard enough. This is too much for me. You know, what do they call that nowadays? Um, like oversharing or whatever. It's like, okay, don't emotionally dump on me. Like we have these phrases in our culture that we use with ourselves kind of casually, but it's true, right? Like some things are unbearable. Like, and where do you go then? If you've experienced something unbearable that you carry inside, like wh who do you talk to about? How do you talk about it? How do you even admit it to yourself? Or something very shameful, right? I mean, that is unbearable in itself, but there is like things that are like, oh, I don't want to look at it. I don't want to share it with anybody. And what you said about family, it made me think about my family was just visiting and that how poorly I was listening. I'm like, no, I can't do this. <laughs> I've had enough, yeah. <laughs> or like people, friends or socially people or people that are not therapists and you casually know them. They're like, are you working now? I'm like, no. I'm definitely not working right yeah. now because it's such a different way of listening and takes so much to listen well. And I'm not doing that at a restaurant, at a bar. That's not what I'm, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I'm enjoying this samosa right now and we can talk, but you really want that. You know, that's a whole different experience. But I think maybe we can take a step back a little bit. What is psychoanalysis? I could tell you what I think psychoanalysis isn't first, and then we could talk about what I think it is. Because if you ask different people, they'll say different things. I think what psychoanalysis isn't is a manualized, rational approach to human beings. So it's not that we have a preformed idea of what a human being is, and we're going to deliver some kind of treatment for it that we know about in advance. I think a lot of psychoanalysis is, like we've been talking about, a way of being, a way of listening, and I think it highlights certain aspects of human nature, which I think are important. And I think maybe speak to also how it believes it can help people. So I'll just say this, but you tell me too what you think. I, one is that our rationality is a very small part of who we really are. We say who we really are based on what we think, but often our motives are very much unconscious to us, but also they are based in really powerful motivations, feelings, thoughts that are often conflicted with one another, that our desires often drive us and we often don't even know what our desires are. Let me say it this way, what motivates us is our affects, our emotions, our fantasies, what we desire. And then there are a lot of ways in which then we rationalize that, push those feelings and thoughts away, are not honest with ourselves about that. And then often those kinds of affects, feelings, fantasies, those kinds of things are not known to us. And they're also conflicted that we have different kinds of feelings simultaneously, different parts of ourselves that are operating. I guess the other piece of it is, I think what's really important too about psychoanalysis is its emphasis on the relationship between the therapist and the patient. And that could take on many forms depending on the school of psychoanalysis. A more traditional psychoanalytic school would say that the, the patient transfers a lot of feelings and fantasies and thoughts onto the therapist, and then the therapist helps the patient understand what those feelings and fantasies are. More relational schools and more contemporary modes of psychoanalysis really talk about that, but they also talk about being with patients in different ways that are unique to the relational experience that help the patients grow, help the patients be with parts of themselves that they were never able to be with, with the therapist, that help them become more of who they are. But the bottom line is that we pay close attention to what's happening in the room between us and our patients. Let me actually take a, another step back, right? Different people have different ideas about what it is. You know, people are like psychoanalysis when you see somebody four times a week on the couch. Right? Yeah, yeah, good question. Very specific, right? Again, uh, let me take a step back. Okay, psychoanalysis is maybe a theory of how people are, theory of mind. You know, what you said about unconscious desires and conflicts, motivations, that's one piece, right? That we can think about it. Because a lot of people think psychoanalytically, but they don't see any patients at all, right? A lot of writers, yeah. you know, like artists, yeah. you know, they uh -huh. think very psychoanalytically and are very interested in psychoanalysis, but never see patients. And then there is kind of like what happens in the treatment as a treatment stance or 
That's right. What's interesting is, I think all of the psychoanalytic theories that we use in cr- critical theory and when, when others use it and when we use it to deploy to understand the world and culture and literature, what's so fascinating to me about all of that, it's, it's derived from a psychoanalytic process. Derived from two people sitting in a room together and one person saying basically, and what I think Freud said initially is, just say whatever comes to mind. And if you can't say it, let's talk about why you can't say it go (laughs) you know and all of the complicated theories that we have about human nature come from just that really interesting experience of just two people sitting in a room together it's the most low-tech thing you can possibly imagine and it's amazing how much it's generated yeah totally if i think about our public figure therapists like esther perel or dr orner from couple stairs they're both analysts but they're not calling it that. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. this goes into another tangent about how, like, for me, is like, how do we make analytic concepts accessible? Because yeah, what they're true. saying, you know, even Esther Perel, like, what she's able to do is to like distill these very complex ideas into a catchy one-liner. I totally agree. I think Esther Perel is brilliant at taking psychoanalytic concepts and making them accessible and talking about them in a way that people can relate to. Same with uh, Irvin Yalom. There's so many good authors and psychotherapists who use the psych, who are in the psychoanalytic tradition or who use it to explain things in such a clear way. But psychoanalysts and institutes often don't do that. And I don't, I don't understand why. This is just my opinion, okay? I'm just going to just tell you what I think. People may disagree with this. They will, but it's all psychoanalytic process. If you listen to the person, and really pay attention to what they're saying. Think about their feelings and affects and fantasies. Pay attention to what's going on in the room with you and your patient. And really deeply try to understand in an emotional level and on a meaning-based level what's happening. That's what we all want, honestly, from our therapists. Usually, if somebody has a specific phobia or OCD or something that is more akin to a behavioral treatment, I can understand why they would want a manualized-based treatment. But if somebody's having problems in their relationships, where they're constantly anxious or inhibited, or they they constantly find themselves in the same situation that they're always in, or they're just unhappy with their life, and they don't understand why, or there are things going on in their life that they can't quite come to terms with. I mean, we all want someone to just listen, you know, and really try to make sense of it with us. So I think to me, that's psychoanalytic process, because once that starts happening, everything else comes from that. Yeah, I think the Third piece, when I think about what psychoanalysis is and we think about it, a, a theory of mind, right? Just kind of, kind of a, a way to understand people and a treatment modality. And maybe the third way is to kind of think about it as a way of thinking, a way of processing information. You know, one phrase I like to forget who said this. So forgive me, I can't remember the reference, but psychoanalysis is about making familiar things unfamiliar. I like that because it's, it's like we see the surface of things. But in psychoanalysis, we think more carefully about the words people use, the slips that they make, the little thing that doesn't quite work that that becomes highlighted that actually speaks to an underlying motivation or conflict or feeling. Ways in which we ordinarily think about ourselves in the world are are one thing, but then if we really look at them carefully, things start to fall apart and you start to see the complexity in things. And that's what I love about psychoanalysis when it does that. Yeah, like a curiosity to what is happening or... Right, a genuine curiosity. Yeah, sometimes I'm like, you're overdoing it, yes. <laughs> that's what it is. <laughs> right. Stop overthinking. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, that's a really good point too. Actually, you know what? Actually, what you just said totally is right. And it's just reminding me of something that it's actually a dialectic between what I just said and making the familiar, unfamiliar, but also truth-seeking. Like, what's the truth here? Like, can you handle the truth to use that? cliche, right? Maybe all of this overthinking is a way of getting away from something that's pretty basic. You hate her. (laughs) You're making up all of these reasons for why you love her, but you know what? I think you kind of hate her. (laughs) It's like sometimes in therapy, you just got to call it, right? This happens to me a lot in therapy. You can tell me this happens to you. The patient's like, I think it should be this. I think it should be that. I don't know. They have a big decision and they're overthinking it. But you know what you realize after talking to them for a while? They've already made up their minds haven't actually admitted it to themselves. 
because the choice they made is really uncomfortable. Yeah, and it's an uncomfortable in many ways, right? It might hurt somebody. It might not be how they see themselves as. That's absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I wonder if we could sort of, and you touched upon this a little bit, like what are some, like maybe two or three sort of concepts, psychoanalysis that are sort of, you know, regardless of different, you know, if I'm like a, because even within psychoanalysis, there's different factions or, you know, groups of people that practice differently. But I think there's maybe like that are similar, but I wonder if you could give us some sort of foundational concepts about working psychoanalytically. Sure. So one is, uh, I think, paying close attention to affects, moods, emotional, emotional world of the person. Because oftentimes when we talk about things with people, we tend to be very rational with them. And, you know, when you go to somebody, for example, for when you have a problem, and if it's a problem where it's like an engineering problem, right? Where if your toilet's not working and you need to replace your toilet seat, you say, well, how do I do this? Well, look at an instruction manual, we can fix it, right? <laughs> that doesn't really work with emotional problems. If you go to someone with an emotional problem and say, hey, I've got this, you know, I've got all this anxiety about dating this woman. And someone says, well, why don't you just do this? Like really quick, you just feel shut down. You don't feel listened to. You don't feel like the person really gets it. And then you'll just not talk to them. So. I feel like one major principle in psychoanalytic thinking is paying close attention to the person's emotions, affect. And then what you'll see there is if you pay attention to that, a couple of things. I mean, I think one is, well, I'll say a couple of things. One is they're often, again, like I I know I'm using this word, probably overusing it. They're conflicted with one another. Um, Well, I I really like this woman, but um, she makes me nervous. Well, why does she make you nervous? Well, you know, there's certain things about her that make me nervous because I, and then you, you start to find out that the person's uncomfortable with their own desire. Or maybe there are things about this woman they don't like that they're having a hard time articulating or putting into words. Or maybe they don't even like this woman, they like this woman's partner. <laughs> but they're saying they like this woman because it's safer to say that they like this woman than really they're in love with somebody else. So these things, and it's fascinating. I mean, these things come out more in literature, right? Or in novels. You see this all the time. And this is why I think, obviously there's such a close overlap between psychoanalytic thinking and literature. But You know, we all have this kind of thing. So that's one thing. I guess the other thing I would say is, um, and this kind of relates to it, is as a person starts talking, what you start to see is the way they start to, after a long time, what you see, I think, is, well, maybe sometimes not so long, you start to see that there's patterns that emerge in a person. There's a way, the ways that they start to relate to the world that are kind of repetitive, that they... They put onto the world. They have certain beliefs. They have certain attitudes about the world, certain ways in which they see the world. And then if you talk to them more about it, you'll see that they're often based in some fantasies or some ideas about human beings, about who they are, who other people are, who they imagine they have to be with other people, what they imagine other people want from them. So all these things get played out and they're often in kind of the realm of fantasy. When I say fantasy, I mean it in the most broadest sense, meaning a kind of narrativized story or narrativization of some kind of emotional feeling. I like that reframe about narrative, right? It's based on some experience that they've had that they created a narrative around, right? So it's not just imagined. It is, but it's also based on some experience and meaning that they have associated with it that then became the sort of record or background music or I don't know how, how way we want to describe it that's sort of yeah I like that background music that kind of the underlying kind of yeah so there is sort of this conflicted set of emotions you know talk about ambivalence I think that's what you're talking about sort of ambivalence about life choices yeah like one example as we were talking about is Perel, kind of like this ambivalence about security and novelty right I love the way she talks about that sexuality because I think that gets lost often in sexuality. There's always this dialectic between safety and adventurousness and the erotic always has a kind of adventurousness to it, but we also require safety in sexuality. Yeah, but that ambivalence, like those two things, like happens in all of our experiences, right? Like all the choices, like if I eat this, I won't get to eat this. Like, 
is it okay or how how do you deal with that ambivalence you know exactly and, and often how we we deal with it is we avoid the ambivalence <laughs> in different ways and i guess uh, psychoanalysis would call those our defenses our ways of avoiding those uncomfortable conflicts or feelings that we don't want to face up to and those ambivalence kind of maybe like they're everywhere, right? I love my parents, but I hate my parents. Exactly, yeah. That's the archetypal one, yeah. yeah. Or, or I want to live, but I don't want to live. You know, sort of much more existential um, to... I think you just captured two of the really beautiful ones that I often see in my practice loving your parents or hating your parents. And I would say all of your blood, like kin relationships. Like I hate my sister, I love my sister. I hate my mom, I, I love my mom. Or I hate my whole family, I love my whole family. Like it could go into all kinds of directions, but also uh, about living and dying. I mean, I think that's a very fundamental question that we all ask ourselves all the time. Why do you think there's such a thing about love and hate with parents or people close to us? Why do you think that is? My analyst said something to me once where he said, because I was telling him all about, you know, my own conflicts, which are there, of course, as they are with everyone. And he says, he said, if you love your parents, at least 55%, that's okay. <laughs> you can hate them 45%, but if you love them 55%, then, you know, they did a good job, actually, and you're okay. I think it's the fact that in all relationships, we never get what we fully want from the people lives that we are with. I, I guess the prototypical example is when we're a baby, we have all of these desires and needs to want to get something right away. We want to be fed, we want to be taken care of, we want these ways of being feeling safe in the world. And sometimes our caregivers will provide that and sometimes they won't. And when they provide that, they're the best people in the world. We love them. They're our saviors. And when they don't, they're the absolute worst and we hate them. We can't stand it. And there's always this kind of thing that goes on, I think, in all relationships. And the other piece of this is there's this kind of closeness and distance issue, too. If people are too close, we feel smothered, right? If people are too far apart from us, we feel abandoned. And I think this is an impossible issue in human relationships. What is the optimal distance? The truth about life is that what your optimal distance is is not going to be what your mother's optimal distance is or your dad's or your spouse's or anybody in your life. So these are like endless problems that we all face as human beings. I guess the other way of saying it is like, how do we love and be intimate with people, but yet have our own subjectivity and be our own sense of self, be our own people too? And hate is such a strong word. When we say we love and hate, like I would never have my parents listen to this, right? Like, I don't, I'm not like, I don't hate you. <laughs> you know, I have trouble with some things you do. So there is this, this word that's so loaded. Um, yeah, that's why I like it actually. Maybe this is my mom's artist side of me. I have to be provocative, but no, but honestly, I think it's a good word because otherwise it feels like we're dampening down on the experience. Like I do feel like in very primal ways, we do hate the people in our lives that we also love. When you have children or if you see like a child, like with a caregiver, the child's like, one minute they're playing, they're happy, the mom's playing. And the next minute they're like, I hate you, mom. I hate you. And, and what, what's the mom's answer there? Like a good mom would say something like, yeah, that's okay. You know, that's all right. You still have to clean your room. You know? <laughs> Make me all you want. The other thing is like, if you allow yourself to feel the hate, if you can bear the hatred with your children, with your parents, with your patients, then there's room to grow and for them to be okay with their own feelings of hatred. My consultant like talks about like hating the love, right? I don't want to love you. I don't want to need you. I don't want to care about you. I don't want to depend on you. And that's what the hate also comes in. Yeah. That's a really good point. Yeah, that's one form of hatred, I think. Hatred over our dependency towards others. Yeah. So hate has multiple meanings here. It's hating something that you bring up in me, not necessarily you as a person, but that too, but also hating something that it brings up in you. Right. And that's what's beautiful about psychoanalysis, that it's not just one thing, that we can have this dialogue with one another, and then you and I can talk about 
it, and you can put into words and I can put into words our experiences of hatred and then make some sense of it and where it comes from and what it's about. Be with our hatred in a different way. And, and this leads me to like kind of thinking because psychoanalysis off, or therapy, you know, in general, it's like often thought as a very sort of individual thing, like two people in a room or couples therapy, but very sort of separate from what's happening in the world. And I wonder if you could speak a little bit about it. How do we relate psychoanalysis to things that are happening socially or politically or, or can we? I don't know what your thoughts are on that. I feel like everything is in the psychoanalytic encounter because there's going to be racism. There's going to be issues around climate change. There's going to be anxieties about the world, about where we're at, about our fantasies about Donald Trump. And all of these things are going to come out in the psychoanalytic encounter, I think, in the therapy. So I think the therapy is deeply personal, but it's also all of these other things that come up in the world because as human beings, we're kind of born into the world and the world imposes itself on us in its own mytho-symbolic universe that we don't have a choice to either be in our culture or not. We are in our, our culture. We imbibe our culture and our culture is phantasmatically, for lack of a better word, imprinted in us. So we're all born into a racist culture, a sexist culture, a culture that has all kinds of power dynamics, beliefs, capitalist ideologies. They're all in us. And the way they operate in fantasy and the way they all are expressed, you can see that in an individual psychotherapeutic encounter. But I think you could also use those ideas in a greater cultural context and societal context. When you do that, I'm always a little bit cautious, honestly, because maybe as a clinician, my bias is I want to be open-minded and listen to things that I don't understand and really be with that clinical process. But I've found psychoanalytic theorizing sometimes helpful in cultural, political kinds of discourses too. Can you give us an example of the times that you found it helpful? I think you and I agree about David Eng. Like I love David Eng and I love his ideas about racial melancholia. So let me just back up for a second. I feel like one aspect of psychoanalysis that I think has been ignored in many psychoanalytic institutes, but has always been there actually, if you look at the history of psychoanalysis, is about the ways in which we've internalized our culture and how our culture plays out in our fantasies and our motivations and drives and the way that we see others and ourselves. And one aspect I think that has been so helpful for me in David Eng's work and other people who do the kind of work on racism, psychoanalysis, is the ways we've internalized racist beliefs and racist beliefs about ourselves. Because in many of my patients of color who come into psychoanalysis, part of the work is emancipating them from the racist structures that they've internalized and allowing themselves to become more of who they are. And that kind of emancipatory work is painful, it's difficult, it's uncomfortable, it creates all kinds of dilemmas and uh, political incorrectness that goes on in the therapy. But I think in the end it's very important because we all have racist fantasies about ourselves even. And I could just even say this as an Asian American, as an Indian American, like I had to do a lot of work to become more in touch with my own ways in which I had racism towards Indian people and the Indian parts of me that I was racist against that I, I wanted to disown because of my shame around my parents and growing up and feeling in many ways I had to be white, I had to be a certain way and all of the fantasies around wishing that I was different than what I was, always feeling in some ways that I belonged to the culture I did, but didn't belong. And this is where I love David Eng's work, that there's always this, with minorities, and he talks specifically about Asian Americans, there's always this almost approaching being American, but never quite feeling like you get in. And what that feels like and what that is experience is like in our own minds. It sounds like you're saying like, the therapeutic dyad or in therapy, we get an opportunity to kind of process and work through what happens outside of the therapy room or in the in this cultural milieu of oppression and different pieces. That I think that's what you're sh sharing with me. Right, and also being able to challenge these racist fantasies we have or sexist fantasies we have, often about our own selves. Or about other people, right? Because, And if you've written about this, some of that is 
inflicted on us in the therapeutic as a therapist in the room with a client who might be white or, you know. My patients, they often have all kinds of fantasies about what it means for me to be an Indian person and to be able to explore that with them. And I think it also happens with a dyad where I mostly see Asian clients. So the dyad who, somebody who is a first generation versus someone who is darker skin Asian, you know, like those things are playing out. Yes. We don't often have the language to talk about when the two dyads are more closely related, but not, you know, it's... Um, I forget the author who said this, but there's this great term. I wish I remembered the name, but it's called cultural scotoma. It's two people of two similar cultures do therapy together and things get missed because there's an over-identification between the therapist and the patient. And I, I think you're speaking to that. And it's so true that with my patients too. Again, the other thing that I think is so great about psychoanalysis or great is the right word, but I think important is we, we could even interrogate the term Asian American. Asian American is a wonderful term because in some ways, because it creates solidarity between groups of people that have been marginalized and oppressed. And with all of the racism that goes on, you need groups and to create a group in group to fight that racism and to also be feel a part of something, belong. Asian American, the term can also be deployed and used and weaponized against people. And it did in the 90s, at least when I was studying psychology, where there was a whole chapter on quote unquote, the Asian American. It talked all about how Asian Americans are this way. Asian Americans don't like conflict. Asian Americans don't like they like wholeness, they like this. I'm like, really? Like, who is this Asian American? Like, I, and this is where psychoanalysis can be helpful. Who, what is your fantasy about who this Asian American is that you're talking about in this textbook? And how dare you say that? Because my, my mom certainly doesn't avoid conflict when I go to the Mexican restaurant with her and she keeps asking for the same thing over and over again and demanding the check. This is not the Asian American I know. So I don't understand. And, and like you said, first generation versus second generation, different parts of Asia, even within India itself, all of the different ways in which there are fantasies around what it means to be Indian and where part of India are you from? They go on forever. Yeah. Like the subjectivity of the other is lost, right? We're just kind of in this one big lump of people. Yeah. And again, it's also really uh, wonderful to bring Asian Americans together and feel a sense of solidarity. To me, that's been really helpful when I went to a school that was half African-American, half white, and they were constant fighting, but I was one of the few Asians in the school. So for me, when I went to Rutgers and I went, met other Asian people, for me, it was like, yeah, we're Asian. We have something in common. Yeah. Like anything, that's right. there's the good and the things that we need to talk about. And can we talk about it? Right. Because Asian-American to me means very differently from somebody else. And, and what does it mean? And all these things different pieces. The other interesting thing is too, that because of the collective racialized fantasies that go on in the culture, we've internalized those. And a lot of what we think of as Asian as you think of as Asian is based on the, what the culture thinks of as Asian that we actually use with, our, with each other. Ironically, points of commonality that are based on kind of racist fantasies of what the culture tells us we are. Yeah, I think the trope of the Asian mother, you know how Asian moms are, you know, like I'm like, ah. Even the, the term is has racist overlays to it, the tiger mom, you know? Totally. Um, I'm looking at time, and um, I wonder if you could maybe just give us one misconception about psychoanalysis. I feel like psychoanalysis has done a lot of harm, honestly. And I guess one misconception about psychoanalysis that I would want to challenge is psychoanalysis is not the 1950s New York ego psychology, rich, elitist, um, white, elderly man who thinks he knows more than you, who's gonna be incredibly quiet, sitting there on his very fancy sofa and you, you lying on the couch, him not saying anything, him assuming he knows who you are and telling you truths about yourself. To me, that's like the worst kind of psychoanalysis. But that is a common conception of what psychoanalysis is. Yeah. And it's still present. I mean, we don't want to deny that. This is what many people still do. And, and not to say that's not helpful for some people, but that would not have been helpful to me. 
It is not an untrue version of psychoanalysis, but there is many other types of psychoanalysis and psychoanalysts that, that are not that. Right. That's why I have a hesitancy in saying what's a myth about psychoanalysis, because everything I'll say actually does apply to some people who do do psychoanalysis that I don't necessarily agree with. Like, uh, I'll give you an example, actually, an interesting example. In a podcast I heard recently by a very famous psychoanalyst who's written a book, and he was in um, a podcast called New Books in Psychoanalysis. And the, the interviewer, who was a younger person, asked him, you know, do, do any of your, does this kind of, I know there's this whole new burgeoning stuff about racism and stuff about uh, our culture having these kinds of collective racists. Do you find any of that helpful in your own work? With what he said was, I thought, really fascinating. Is he said, you know, honestly, no. I've been treating an Asian American man for several years in four times a week on the couch psychoanalysis. And honestly, race has never come up. And it's never come up. And I don't think it's necessary. And I don't think it, it's been really been important for him to talk about. And I was like, wow. Wow. I mean, my own fantasy about this whole encounter. And again, it's just a fantasy. I don't know the particulars of the situation. But my fantasy is that the Asian, quote unquote, Asian man that you had lying on your couch probably on some level realized that you couldn't talk about those things, didn't feel like you could relate to those things and didn't quite believe that you would understand him that way. So he left it out because he realized that you wouldn't get it. And meanwhile, you thinking you're doing this great job that it's not important. But meanwhile, it's because there's a whole scotoma there. Blind spot. Yeah. I, I mean, there's so much I could say about that, right? I mean, um, yeah, like you didn't ask either, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You just assume based on your theories that it's not important. So yeah, so it's not important. Yeah. It, it made me think even earlier, you know, kind of the, the way that we essentialize Asian folks, like kind of silence, right? Oh, Asians are silent and or quiet, or even if that is true, what is causing the silence, which is what you're saying. Like, why is this client not talking about it? And and you're curious about everything else. Why aren't you curious about that, right? It's kind of- I totally agree. Like in psychoanalysis, another like important point you're bringing up, right, is we don't just listen for what's there. We listen for what's not there. You know, you keep talking about your mother all the time. Why didn't you ever bring up your dad? Like, what happened to him? Like, and then you realize that there's actually important things there that they just, is unbearable to talk about. So you're right, exactly the same situation here. Why? Yeah, I've been thinking about that. My dad doesn't show up as much in my therapy. I'm like, what is happening? You'll find out. Don't worry. <laughs> Thanks. Um, I, I'll just share one thing that I recently have been like thinking about this misconception about psychoanalysis. People think Freud is white. I mean, we can, he's European, but he's a Jewish man living in a place where Jewish people were very persecuted and oppressed. That's a really good point. Yes. So psychoanalysis, in a way, was coming from a mind of a person who, in a some way, understands or was impacted deeply by being othered and and yeah, and he had defenses around that, right? All these things that came from it as my understanding of his dealing with that. But I think that that gets lost. Yeah. I think I'm like, don't want us to throw psychoanalysis out because this feels like an important point that this is yeah. a way of thinking that come from a man that was experienced oppression in a very deep way. And there's value in that. And I, I don't know exactly what it like, I, but I think it's something that keeps coming back to me. Oh, you know, there's, there's so much to say about this. So first of all, I, I totally agree with you. And I think that psychoanalysis, actually, if you look at the greater history of psychoanalysis, has always been a fringe movement, a radical, actually. And even at the time, was often dismissed as a kind of Jewish science and really ridiculed. And some good reason, but for some racist reasons and anti-Semitic reasons, considered a joke. And Freud always fought that and fought against this kinds of ways in which his work was being marginalized. A great book actually about this is the Louis Iron book on a psychoanalysis for the people. He talks a lot about Freud's anti-Semitism and his shame around that and history of anti-Semitism and Freud's encounter with it. And Freud grew up in a culture that was steeped in anti-Semitism in Vienna. And he was also poor, came from a very poor family that was struggling with money. When psychoanalysis came to the United States, 
because of the trauma of the Holocaust and a lot of the people who came to the United States at the time who wanted to establish psychoanalysis as a science, they created all kinds of ways in which it infiltrated medical schools and they tried to create an orthodoxy of Freudianism, especially on the East Coast, that was very much whitewashed, to put a lack of a better word. If you look at Freud, like Freud did all kinds of strange stuff. Like in the little Hans case, the analysis went through the father, not even the kid. Like he had all kinds of ways in which he did things in an orthodox way. He also advocated for free clinics. Yeah, exactly. You know, so there is a, a different version of psychoanalysis that kind of, you know, kind of how we see psychoanalysis now is not necessarily, not to say that there wasn't misogyny and, and all these other things with it. Something got lost over the hundred years. And as you were talking, it made me think about meditation or yoga even, right? Kind of the ways that things get lost as it kind of comes into this more mainstream white upper middle class, you know, kind of some things get lost and the origins of it are not being honored or, or thought about. So any, any last words that you want to share or anything? I feel like psychoanalysis at its worst can really hurt patients, close them down, create a lot of violence, especially if people of color, LGBT. We didn't talk about that, but psychoanalysis has, has, has been devastating for people, queer people in a way that is, is, is unconscionable, honestly. And not just psychoanalysis, but the whole DSM. So at its worst, psychoanalysis can do a lot of harm. But at its best, I think it could be emancipatory. It could help a person grow and become more of who they are, help them love other people more and in deeper ways, and help them also become more comfortable with who they are. And uh, I think it could be a really beautiful, wonderful thing if done right. Right. Well, we'll stop here then. Thank you so much.